New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. I'm sure that we can all agree that any life-threatening medical diagnosis is a traumatic event. The emotional scars of facing and treating such a diagnosis can invoke a complex mix of fear, sorrow, anger, and confusion. Even when one is in remission of such an illness as cancer, the capacity to deal with such a trauma both during treatment and post-treatment involves a massive amount of energy and courage. Today we'll be going beyond medical treatments and explore the emotional healing of survivorship with our guest, Cheryl Crowder. Cheryl Crowder is a marriage and family psychotherapist with almost 40 years of experience in the field of depth psychology. Her own voyage through cancer combined with her experience as a therapist brings a unique perspective to her clients. Focusing on and helping others has been an important part of her recovery. She conducts talks and workshops on living with the uncertainty of life-threatening illness and is the author of Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. Join us for the next hour as we explore a humanistic psychological perspective to survivorship of a life-threatening illness with our guest, Cheryl Crowder. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Cheryl, welcome. Thank you so much. I'd love to have you tell us and help us to see the inspiration that brought you to both your work in the world as a psychotherapist and and the work of this uh, putting together this guide. Ooh, well, my inspiration for this particular guide was my own journey, actually more after cancer than during the treatment. There's a way in which when people are first diagnosed, or when I was first diagnosed, uh, for one thing, I was like, what? This can't be right. This is, they've got the wrong chart. This isn't me. And so there's all this disbelief and this sense of shock at that stage of the game. And so most of us, myself included, you hit the ground running. It's like, okay. And it's a very intense time. It's a very busy time. There's actually quite a bit of structure during this time as you 
decide with some help, okay, what am I going to do here and how am I going to do it? And so you hit the ground running, go into uh, treatment. I had a, a very aggressive metastatic breast cancer, so I had to do uh, a really grueling uh, sessions of chemotherapy followed by radiation. And so then I finished, and it was like, oh, well, I mean, I walked out of the radiation room. It was uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. I had treatment every morning at 5.30. I needed to work as much as I could during treatment, which all, a lot of people have to do. And I, I just felt like, oh, uh, well, what now? And uh, oftentimes this is what people feel. So I looked around. I said, well, there must be someone that I could talk with about this, some groups, something. And there's a lot of, well, not a lot. I should say there are some resources available in the hospitals or the clinics, groups that are perhaps 10 sessions and they go through, one session might be diet, one session might be exercise, things like that. That's very useful. And then there are more behavioral, uh, cognitive behavioral methods of dealing with a cancer diagnosis or its aftermath. What I discovered, though, is I didn't find anything narrative. And my inspiration is always in the narrative. It's always in the story. And it's always about, in a sort of, from the way I was always a child, like, don't kind of tell me who I am and don't tell me what to do and don't tell me what to eat, you know, kind of digging the heels in. I want to explore that. I want to find that myself. So I thought, well, there's a need here. And then, you know, I'd be in cancer groups or in, in sessions, things like that. And I would notice that people had a great need to talk about what happened for them, to tell the story. And so you'd be in a big workshop, big, big event, and people would want to talk. And, and there really wasn't the space for them to be witnessed and heard, which to me is the other very, very important part of this. It's one thing to tell your story. But the most important is another very important component, which is that you're witnessed or you're heard in that process too. So I sort of hemmed and hawed and thought, well, I really feel like this is a need. Do I want to do this? I took this choice really seriously because I knew, well, I'm going to be back in the world of cancer. I'm going to be dealing with all the issues. It's going to, of course, trigger things in me, certainly at the beginning, not so much at this point because it's been, thank goodness, a while. And I always kind of feel like, you know what? I took the call. I said, you know, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this call. And so from then I jumped on, and it's felt like that all the way along to me. Like my intention, my, my image of this book has been all the way along a pair of hands holding this book, and it's likely that I'm never going to see whoever is holding this book, but there's a knowing in me that somewhere, and I, now, I, of course, I get some feedback that, oh, yes, so-and-so was helped by this, so-and-so was helped by that. And that, to me, is the inspiration. Keeps me moving on it. When, when you talk about telling the story and there's not a place for that, I'm, I'm reminded that m many people, like... You've gone through the treatment, and it's a very as you you you. Some people have go through very very radical treatments. Oh, I mean, just I mean, horrible, brutal, yeah, brutal, brutal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where your your whole body is attacked. I mean, you have cancer, but then your whole body is attacked in another way. Yeah, um, and and you say that people 
want to tell their story, but there's no place to really say it. I'm, I'm thinking of that idea that once the treatment part is over, the medical treatment part is over, then let's say caregivers and family and friends and everybody just sort of celebrating, yay, yay, yay. Mm-hmm. But then you described something when you were describing this very directive sort of energy that's happening. Mm-hmm. You've got doctors and healthcare mm-hmm. professionals, and you've got appointments mm-hmm. and all of this. You've, everything is surrounding you. And you you talk about like six o'clock in the morning, you walk out of your last radiation treatment, and suddenly it must feel like you're just isolated in some way. You're you're alone. You're like right, right. your your team has poof disappeared they no longer are there because they're they're they were there for a certain activity yes mhm so what can you say about that well this is where i encourage people i know for myself it was kind of like falling off a cliff like whoa what just happened and there's a lot of pressure interestingly enough particularly with cancer as a life threatening illness to see this as a gift to move forward, there's a lot of pressure to be okay and make it a journey, which it is a journey, but there's a difference between an authentic journey that takes whatever time it takes, whatever space it takes, and is unique to me, to you, to whomever, than just sort of slamming into sort of a prescribed way of dealing with things. So the first thing I, I really suggest to people is give yourself space. Let yourself know that this transition from what you've just been through takes whatever time it takes, and there's no right or wrong way to do it. And to be aware of the expectations that will come on you. And I appreciate, you know, the partners, the families, all these people, they have their stories too. And it's been really hard to walk alongside the patient. So, of course, they're wanting people to be okay. I mean, you get these crazy lines like, hey, you're fine now. It's all good. And, uh, you know, but really it's, it's well meant. And so to kind of see it like they mean well. But they just don't, they don't understand that it's a feeling of being lost. It's a feeling of needing to find who you are now because it is a life-changing. Life-threatening is life-changing. So you're, you're saying you don't really go back to the way things were quite the same way. It's yeah. okay, like everybody says, okay, now we can get back to normal. Back to normal or the new normal. Honestly, Justine, normal to me is elusive. I don't know what people are talking about. With <laughs> people say to me in my practice, is this normal? And I look and I say, you knew you were asking the wrong person <laughs> because I have no concept of normal. But, you know, who are you? What matters to you? What's happened to you? You tell me. And what I notice is that if I start to see people, maybe they're either just finishing treatment or they finished it, and it's pretty close into the end of that period where, again, that's like fall off the cliff, like, holy smokes, what the heck, where am I, what's going on, I, I, don't, I still don't feel good, because you don't feel good, you know. And um, we start talking and working with it, and I just sort of listen and, you know, tell their stories. There's a period, it seems like I've noticed it's about a year, and again, 
that's just, you know, a ballpark thing. But people that come in and they're allowed to have that space and not sort of push and shove themselves into a box that's not them. After about a year, they start to sort of say, well, hey, I think I really might be okay. I think I might be able to have hope for my life, plan for the future, because most of us finish and we're like, I don't know, you know, it's a pesky disease. It came on. I didn't feel it coming on. I don't know. And people don't feel as though they're going to be okay, by and large. They just don't feel There's it. There's that, that feeling of uncertainty. Totally. And, yeah, yeah. And that, the quality of living with uncertainty, uh, I mean, we all have it. I mean, that's life, right? It's, mm-hmm. We all have it. Yet if you've had, you know, drawn the straw of a life-threatening illness, in this case cancer, uh, it kind of ups the ante and it makes it right in the face. It's not a theory. You know, yeah, it's not right. like we're not all talking about right. it. Oh, we're all right. I know, yeah. I know, I know. Yeah. I'm going through a, yeah. a, a, the year to live with a group of people. We're going uh-huh. through that Stephen mm-hmm. Levine uh-huh. book, and we're mm-hmm. going every month we meet in a year to mm-hmm. live. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, uh, it's hard for me to really, really say, okay, I really only have a year to live. I, I can't. I don't believe it on some level. I can't believe it, but I, but if yeah. if I had a cancer diagnosis, yeah. I might believe it. Right. And you even know. then you might think, what if I had a day to live? Yeah, exactly. A week, a right. month. Exactly. A year for some might be like, wow, that That's is phenomenal. If I get a year, I'm going to be pretty happy. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Cheryl Crowder, and she's the author of Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, CherylCrowder.com. And she spells her last name, Crowder, K-R-A-U-T-E-R, Cheryl Crowder.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Cheryl Crowder. She's the author of Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. And I'll remind our listeners uh, how she spells her name, Cheryl, C-H-E-R-Y-L, Crowder, K-R-A-U-T-E-R, Cheryl Crowder. And you can go to her website, CherylCrowder.com, or get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. Cheryl, I would love to uh, ask you about the term that you use. You use um, survivor, 
And not everybody right. uses that right. term. So I'd right. love for you to just say a few words about that term and why you use it and what mm-hmm. other terms other people are using. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a great question because it is. it can be controversial. Uh, I ended up using the word survivor because it, because it is the, the word that is used. It is the most standard and common word that is used. But what I suggest to people you know, in the book, for one thing, you're not your diagnosis and you're not a statistic. And so you're not a survivor in quotes. Some people, it depends on what term you want to use. I use survivor. I don't have an issue with it, but some people, they don't like it. Some people call it cancer conqueror. Some people call themselves cancer warriors, uh, I say to people, you know, use, if you don't like any of these terms, that's fine. Use the term you want or just use your own name. But I did choose to use it because it is in the literature. And I particularly wanted to, um, how shall I say, the sort of infiltrate more of the medical model, mm-hmm. more of the medical world. Um, I didn't want to just preach to the choir. So I used a term also that would be known in the more traditional circles so that we could kind of get this information more broadly used. So that was the choice. I did think about it, though. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You uh, you also mentioned something about um, telling telling the story. And um, when what I want to ask is we have trouble talking to people who have had this diagnosis. Mm. Um, people are fearful. They don't know what mm-hmm. to say. And I know that you've said, oh, one of the, one of the things um, that you hate for people to say to you, oh, you'll be all right, <laughs> is know, one of the exactly. things. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. how it's, it's kind of a, a suffering. There's a wall of silence, mm-hmm, in other words, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. okay, your treatment is finished, and then people don't want to talk about it right, anymore. Right. And and so what can you say for us? How can we help someone to get beyond that wall of silence? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The first thing I recommend to somebody is just saying, how are you? <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm pretty simple, Justine. Yeah, I'm a pretty, right, right. Um, because I do think that the f- friends, partners, family members, associates, colleagues feel afraid, oh, am I going to upset the person? Or will I say, the again, in quotes, the wrong thing? Um, because I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say about this. So more it's, again, if we just open up and say, you know, how are you? Or even to say to somebody, you know, I, I'm struggling. I don't, I don't know what, you know, you tell me. Again, in that whole mm-hmm. theme of telling the story. And then I always think it's important for people to be able to be open to say, and this is how I feel or I felt, particularly, um, I think friends is a category. When I was doing a lot of reading and researching on this book, uh, the two groups that I thought were interesting, I mean, partners is such a a big group, and then family members, um, but 
friends can often feel very left out and very uh, uncertain about what to do. I mean, they're not on the list at the hospital. You can't call, find mm-hmm. out how somebody is. So that group, um, again, it's like reestablishing your friendship and remembering that it's, a, it's two-way. This is a friendship. It's not just one person. So you can share your different feelings and don't, uh, most people are cancer survivors, cancer patients, welcome a normal, uh, normal, there's that word, a, a conversation where they're not just the center of attention. You see what I'm saying? It's yeah. like, they, you know, yeah. I, I want to know how someone's felt. Right. And then siblings was another group that can be in a lot of pain, mm-hmm. all the way from little ones, uh, all the way, you know, to older siblings who feel at that point, oh, my goodness, you know, um, my sibling is really sick. And, you know, the parents are, of course, focusing on them and they can feel very left out. And sometimes if they're little enough, they can feel like, oh, is it my fault? So all these feelings are happening. Again, if we just check in, just ask, you know. I'm thinking, Cheryl, uh, one of the withholds that occurs to me might be, uh, let's suppose it's a whole year since uh, the treatment mm-hmm, has mm-hmm. has now mm-hmm. gone, gone and, mm-hmm. and our friend or our loved one is, mm-hmm. is doing, seemingly doing fine. We might be hesitant to say, Ask, how are you? Because mm-hmm. we may not want to remind them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of their cancer. Right, and and right. it might be well-intentioned. Uh, so I, I'm thinking that might be one of the withholds that, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. those of us mm-hmm. who want to support right. but don't know how. Most people that I speak with are really touched when someone asks mm-hmm. how you are, particularly after a year. Or even after some time, and for instance, I when I had cancer, I was fortunate. I mean, I have a, I mean, I had a grueling cancer and a grueling treatment, but I feel really fortunate and very grateful. I mean, I'm sitting here, and I was able with some uh, accommodations to work as a therapist during this time. And because of the kind of work I do, it's it's deep work, it's authentic work. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to have to just show up, and there's no way I can't disclose because that would be completely insane. So I still have some people who I work with during that time who every so often, they ask me how I am. And to me, it really touches me. I really like it. Even though it was like nine years ago. It, yeah, yeah, I've still touched yeah. because I find it so sweet and so kind. Right. Some people may not want to talk about it. So perhaps you could preface it by saying, um, you know, I'm wondering how you are. Is it a, you know, if you don't have to say anything if you don't want to, but I mean, most of us like it if someone yeah. wonders how we are. So you know? then yeah. going along with that then is the commitment to deep listening, mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. ask a question and then shut up and, shut up and, listen. and receive, yes. just uh-huh. receive mm-hmm. whatever comes right. to you, right. just receive it. And I'm, I'm thinking of a story that you told in, in your book and guide, and it was that you were right in the height of your treatment and probably you were bald at the time. I I'm not sure. I hair did on that. my entire body. And you were wearing a baseball cap yeah. and oh, you uh-huh. said that you hadn't had a photograph of yourself, mm-hmm. but 
now you needed this photograph. Do you remember that story? And oh, yes, what, yes. Can, can you share well, that so my us? son, that, that was another part of it. I My son was only 14 uh, years old when this happened. And so he was a freshman, and he was actually in, in middle school, but this continued on until his freshman year in high school. And because of that, I really wanted to make this so, hey, I'm okay, um, make it to him like life is going on. So he would, you know, feel as though, hey, I'm going to be okay. It was time for a field trip, and I had to go, <laughs> you practically have to you get fingerprinted. I mean, my God, you know, the criminal history of your life gets, you know, to, to go to some <laughs> field trip with a kid. And so I was in the, the county offices, and uh, of course I walked in at this point, it's obvious, and... Um, had my hat on, and the woman behind the desk <clears throat> is talking to me, and it turns out, and I find this all the time, she sees me, and she knows, and, and she starts telling me some of her stories, and I'm listening, and then it's time for the picture, and I say to her, well, shall I take my hat off? And she said, yes, you take your hat off. You show them. She was just like, you show them. You show them what you're going through. And so I did, and it's the only picture I have of myself during, and I, I do, I think this is when I say I call it my Mrs. Potato Head days because I look <laughs> like Mrs. Potato Head. But there I am without anything. It's, it's, it's uh, vulnerable. It's the most open I'd ever felt in my life. And while it was scary and difficult, it was also transformative because there was no way to hide. And you, you know, felt really seen then by I this woman. I felt seen huh? by her, and I felt like we had shared these stories uh, together. I had heard her story. She had listened to mine, and she had not had cancer, but she had been in a family where someone had had cancer. And so she also needed to talk about her own experience. In fact, a lot of members of her, her family had had cancer. So... Um, it was really a really lovely moment. Right, uh, exactly. Yeah. It's exactly. So It's like uh, the intimacy that can happen. So telling the story, I know I just want you to say something about the structure of of your book a bit because um just describe it a bit and how how it works. Well, it's written from the perspective of the work that I've done for close to 40 years, which is humanistic existential psychotherapy. That is my foundation. And that is the type of work that believes we all have an authentic being that we just need to sometimes peel away all the layers, all the things that get in the way of our being truly who we are, of living from that place. I like to think of it as living from inside to out and making choices from that place. So the perspective is from that, and it starts out sort of explaining, you know, what this is and what I wanted to do because this is almost, someone said to me, this is almost like some, one of my clients, this is almost like being in a therapy session. So it's, it's kind of like that. Each chapter will address certain aspects. Like there's an introduction, which tells sort of my story. There are stories throughout this of other people, both people I interviewed or people I read about. Um, I come from a poetry background, so there's a lot of poetry and writing and, uh, which I like to include, to really soften it, make it a really accessible book. I wanted this to be accessible. So there would come a chapter, for instance, there's a chapter on trauma, which is an enormous part of this, would talk about some of the trauma that can happen so that people, again, they don't feel crazy. They don't feel like, what's wrong with me that I feel this way? Well, 
here you go. And then after that is a workbook section. And the workbook section behind the chapter would be, here are some questions, again, in narrative form that you can use to process, to uh, identify things within you, and then you can write about it, and you can share it with somebody or you can not share it with somebody. And then there's another chapter called Layers, which talks about, okay, what are we talking about here, this authentic inner place? How do you how do you access that? How do you work with that? It's like peeling off the layers. And so that describes some of being present. You know, some of that could be called mindful these days, being present, being with yourself. Again, it would be a description, not academic. I did not want this to be an academic book, but a very accessible book. So people go, oh, I, I get that. So there's and, a place to even write yes, within the book Yeah, there's itself. a workbook. Right. Yeah, you can write in the sections in the workbook. You can share it with people. But mostly it's, it's for you. And what I've found when I have worked with this in workshops is that people are surprised by what comes up. And I like that. I'm here with Cheryl Crowder. She is the author of Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, CherylCrowder.com. She spells her name C-H-E-R-Y-L Crowder, K-R. A-U-T-E-R dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Cheryl Crowder, and she's a psychotherapist, um, family and marriage therapist, and the author of Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. And Cheryl, I wanted to start this segment. I just have to read this because it just, you mentioned something about poetry, and, and many of your chapters start with a poem. And this was one that I had never read before, mm-hmm. and it's by Maya Steen, and it's called How to Climb a Mountain. And I, I want to share this with our listeners because it just knocked my socks off. She says, or writes, Make no mistake, this will be an exercise in staying vertical. (laughs) This will be an exercise in staying vertical. Yes, there will be a view later, a wide swath of open sky. But in the meantime, tree and stone. If you're lucky, a hawk will coast overhead, scanning the forest floor. If you're lucky, a set of wildflowers will keep you cheerful. Mostly, though, a steady sweat, your heart fluttering indelicately, a solid ache perforating your calves. This is called work. What you will come to know eventually and simply as movement, as all the evidence you need to make your way. Forget where you were. That story is no longer true. 
Forget where you were. That story is no longer true. Level your gaze to the trail you're on, and even the dark won't stop you. Yeah. I, I, I just, I, I think that we can all relate to that. I mean, whether, whether we have um, uh, uh, a diagnosis of an illness, it's just walking through, through life. Um, mm-hmm. the, the exercise in staying vertical and, yes. and forget where you were. That, that story is no longer true. And, and just level your gaze, you know. It's like walking through a storm, like, you know, the title. It says, you put, you know, okay, I'm just, I just got to walk through the storm. And that's yeah. called Climbing, How to Climb a Mountain by Maya Stein. Uh, I, I just I thank you for that one. Uh, and, and in talking about that, we, we talk about our, our life after diagnosis. Okay, here we are, and you talk about how, how we, we're like kind of hypervigilant. If we've had that kind of diagnosis, mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. and that's kind of always kind of nagging there with us. Can can you say something about that? Particularly at the beginning of finishing treatment, there's actually uh, about thirty years ago a doctor and physician named Fitzhugh Mullins coined a phrase called the seasons of survivorship. The first season is called acute survivorship. That's where you are. The initial diagnosis, uh, you're in treatment, it's a lot of structure like we've just talked about. Then the next season is called extended survivorship. This is where treatment ends and you still have appointments, you still have you know, scans and tests, but gradually they fall off. And the, the, like the weekly appointments, the treatments, all eyes are not on you at this point. This is a time of waiting of watching, and you're right, hypervigilance, because it's like, you know, is that pimple, is that can't, you know, it's called the cancer pimple, you know, is that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, or is that ache, that pain, you know, how do I call? They say two weeks, but Mm -hmm. what if I don't call? So there's a lot of, again, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fearfulness, because the trauma of it all is still, I, I, I really think it's held in the body. Plus, the trauma of the treatment um, is still in the body. So part of it is moving that that trauma out. Um, and the way I know, there's many ways to work with trauma. The, the way I know is by telling the story, moving it through, talking about it, uh, not letting it lodge in there. And so it's, it's, it's really scary. And then, you know, you might go have um, the test, the blood test, and... <sighs> Usually the, you know, the wait for results is always endless. Waiting for it um, is, is, am I okay? To me, the sort of the anthem through this part is, am I okay? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be okay? Is, uh, can I have hope for my life or, you know, will it come back? You just don't know at the beginning. So it takes a while to move through that. And let's face it, the shadow is always there. It's going to be there mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. And that's just how it is. You have a section in the book, Cheryl, that uh, t- helps us to uh, to know how to talk to your physician mm-hmm. or healthcare mm-hmm. practitioners. Mm-hmm. And a couple of things there. Um, you advise that... 
it might be really good, besides a series of questions, which I found really helpful. You know, uh, you you talk about, um, you know, this series of, of questions, the essentials, mm-hmm, what to bring, mm-hmm, questions mm-hmm. to ask your doctor, mm-hmm. questions about post-treatment and what happens as you move on, questions and just thoughts and ideas and feelings, your concerns. So you have just a whole list of very, very wonderful questions. And one of the things that you suggest and is to have an advocate mm-hmm. go with you mm-hmm. to your appointments. Mm-hmm. And I found this, just recently I have a friend who has been who is diagnosed with breast cancer mm-hmm. and she asked me to drive her to her appointment. Mm-hmm. And she um I said I'd love to do that and I said do you do you know what you're going to ask your oncologist and she said yeah I have a series of questions. And I said, do you want to share those with me? So I I took a copy of her questions Mm -hmm. with me as we went to her doctor. Mm -hmm. And I had my notebook. Mm -hmm. And so I was taking notes as as we were going through her appointment and what he was saying. And and I was kind of keep helping her keep track of the mm-hmm, questions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. she wanted to ask him. Mm-hmm. And then I reminded her at some time during the the appointment, you know, did, do, do you want to mm-hmm. ask, ask Dr. Support this? That's wonderful, yeah. And she said, yeah. oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's and, wonderful. And, um, and then afterwards, she thanked me. She said, I'm so glad you were there. And then I, I wrote, I did an email to her afterwards, and I said, here are the notes that I took. And she said, oh, I'm so thankful I had forgotten that he had said that. Yes. So I I felt useful to her, and I Absolutely. wanted to be useful. Absolutely. I wanted to yeah. be supportive, yeah. Yeah. and I felt really supportive. Yeah. And so what comments do you have about that kind of process? I mean, I think you just told a beautiful story of what the best possible scenario in a horrible scenario is, not only for your friend, but for you. And in many ways for the whoever the, the provider is too, because, you know, if they have a sense that, okay, there's some clarity here. Um, so that to me is the best case scenario. Um, going from that to maybe what isn't, like what if somebody doesn't have anyone? Um, you know, sometimes if, if it's okay, I, I can suggest to somebody, you know, if, you, if on, you're unfortunately you don't have a support system, which is really sad and horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ask the provider, can I record this? Always ask. You know, I need to say something there because I remember years ago when um, my husband had, um, he had uh, walking pneumonia mm-hmm. and uh, I was in the hospital room when his doctor came in and they were, they were talking about things. And I had my little computer and I was taking mm-hmm. notes and I asked the doctor, how do you spell that? Mm-hmm. And he got really uptight. Mm. He got like, "Oh my God, what what's she doing?" Mm-hmm. And I I could I could hear him. I could know what was going through his brain. Mm-hmm. Oh, is she taking notes? Am I going to have a lawsuit here or something? He was like very defensive. And Michael was feeling so terrible. But Michael reached over and took the doctor's hand and used his first name mm-hmm. and he said, "Marco." She's here to advocate for me. Oh, let's see that. We yeah. all want the same thing. That's nice. Yeah. And you could just see him to start to right. relax right. and not right. to be defensive. Right. And, right. and but it took Michael 
to say, to hear the patient to say, no, she's just here to help me. I really love the part where it's we're all here for the same thing. Yes. Because I have developed over the years a tremendous compassion for the providers. Yes. Often people are real mad at them and they expect, you know, they, they're expected to be able to provide a certainty or some kind of knowledge you know, like you said, you're like some secret of the universe. When they're human beings, they can't tell you. And so there's a lot of pressure on them. Their caseloads are phenomenal. And so I get, I get it. But I like that. I think that would be a beautiful suggestion to say, like if you're in the office and you see someone start to get defensive, it's like, you know, we're all we're all yeah. in this together. Yeah. I've written a Because they're human too. They're yeah. human and and, uh, and they're under a lot of pressure, as you they say. They totally are. And uh, And I know another thing that you say in your book, I think it was so good. You know, we come to our appointment with all these questions. And you suggest not to just barrage them with questions to begin with, because doctors and physicians and assistants and whatever, whoever, the professionals, they have a whole checklist that they are required to go through. They have to do it. And if you just allow them to go through that checklist first, maybe then they'll be more amenable to start to hear your questions if they're not answered exactly, within that. Exactly. Well, that whole section where it's, again, like we're talking, is to be sure, and on our parts as the patients or the friends, the partners, we need to make sure that we see them as human beings and treat them with respect. Even when it's kind of like, oh, they're not returning my call, all that still, if you see someone like another human being, you relate to them in that way, you give them the chance then everything's going to go better, right? Uh, so, yes, it's really important to uh, allow them to be human, to be human with them. And I think if we can start to create that in in a medical system that's really struggling. So that's really... We'll be better. <laughs> we'll be better. And yeah. that's really the co-creation that's yes. going on, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, that's mm-hmm. And that's what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say uh, uh, a little bit about the writing that we talked about earlier. The uncertainty is there, uh, fear, anxiety, even depression may be there. And so... In writing, it's. I think you really advocate that it's really important to not rush it. It's not that you're in. It's not that you're you're emphasizing the fear. But if you don't write about it without judgment, let let the fear give it some room, give it some air, mm-hmm. let it out of the closet. Absolutely. What can you say about that? Well, actually. We'll talk about that in just one moment. Because, hold your uh, Just uh, hold that thought, <laughs> okay. hold that question, okay. because I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Cheryl Crowder, and she is the author of Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. And her website is CherylCrowder.com. That's C-H-E-R-Y-L Crowder, K-R-A-U-T-E-R, CherylCrowder.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with marriage and family psychotherapist Cheryl Crowder, and she is the author of the guide, uh, Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story. And I want to say that this workbook also is beyond cancer. I mean, it can be for grief. It can be, I can see that it's useful in so many ways. Uh, it's Thank just you. very, very useful uh, guide. So I was asking you about the writing itself and the writing about fear. Mm-hmm. And, and so say something about that writing and the importance mm-hmm. of it. One of the things I think is very important is to acknowledge that fear is going to be present in, in any of this illness. Oh, fear is present in life. And so my emphasis on fear is not to give it too much power. However, in that saying, like you said, move it out of the closet. I call it the boogeyman of fear. If we let it become too big, it overwhelms us. If we just sort of look at it, touch it, feel it, let it run its course, emotions run through us. And if we just let ourselves be freaked out, terrified, angry, sad, whatever. But in terms of fear, there's, there's, this is a really scary, scary thing we're talking about. To pretend it's not there is kind of nuts, right? So just being able to almost make friends with it in a way that, you know, I'm not going to let you hang around and um, control me. I'm not going to let you dis- make my decisions for me. But you know what? I'm going to acknowledge you when you're here. And I'll pay attention to you. And, you know, I think we can learn a lot from our fears. So that's the way I would suggest people look at it. So it's almost like uh, having a dialogue mm-hmm, with your mm-hmm, fear. And, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so, you know, in dialogue, then things de-escalate right. when we're in dialogue. Uh, You're having <laughs> a conversation with your fear and yeah. that way not letting fear be the boss. Mm-hmm which I think is the most important part, but to acknowledge that, wow, I'm really terrified. And, and people around, I think this is, as I'm thinking out loud maybe, perhaps even more uh, important for partners and family members, friends, who sometimes feel like, ooh, well, they're, they're having so much fear. They're having so much pain. I have to like sit back. I, I can't have a place for my own fears because it might make them more frightened. And so I really want to encourage people who are walking alongside to say, you know, your fear is also real. And it's not going to make anybody suffer more if you have your fears and allow your own fears and not let that trauma get caught in you also. That's a very good point because you have a whole section in, in your workbook about caregivers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Um, I wanted to read something about caregivers. There was one little piece that that popped up for me about caregivers. And, um, you know, of course, they're kind of the forgotten uh, part of all of this. I, I know that it's I changing, was... changing, thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness, thank yeah. goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that I was... Um, I have been caregiver to both my mother-in-law, my mother... Actually, two mothers-in-law and my mother uh, in in their dying. And mm-hmm. um, I, I remember... The, the part when I, when mother, she couldn't really talk or call out to me, so we decided that she could have a bell mm-hmm, that she mm-hmm, would ring. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was, a, there was a moment when I just, that hearing that bell ring 
just was like so painful mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And I realized now it was just a reminder that she was dying. Mm-hmm. Every time I heard mm-hmm. that bell mm-hmm. ring, I would think, oh, I'd forget it for a moment, and yeah. then I was reminded. So yeah. so if I had had your workbook, I probably could have written about that. But one of the things that, that popped out for me in, in your book, you were talking about like the caregiving of a, a particular woman who was working with her mother. And during treatment, their relationship wow. was so intimate. Mm-hmm. It was so intimate. And I just thought this was an experience. Mm. A very articulate statement, mm-hmm. and I want to read it yeah, because I, yeah. I just think it was so articulate, yeah, and you, yeah. had, you had really posted this. You said, one person responded that it was challenging because relationship and roles within the family had to be renegotiated. None of us knew how to be with each other anymore. After treatment, we returned to not discussing anything other than on a surface level. More than the cancer and the fear of death, I think this was what was most difficult for me. I had so often heard about the transformation people can go through during cancer treatment, and I witnessed that in my, with my mom. I wasn't prepared for it to go away. Mm-hmm. I wasn't prepared for returning to a normal life to mean it would almost seemed like cancer never existed. Mm -hmm, After treatment was hard because I found myself missing Mm -hmm. my mom. Mm -hmm. I was beginning to get to know when she was sick, and I would feel guilty for feeling that way. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so articulate that that then her mom was so open and vulnerable Uh uh and sharing, and then now the treatment's over, and then she went back to... Not she being closed that way. Down. She closed, closed down. down. She closed down. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that was so poignant yeah, for me. Yeah, and so, mm-hmm. these are some of the the things that we go through yeah. as as we help one another and walk this this path with right. one another. Right. Mm-hmm. So, what can you say to us about caregiving and about helping others and accepting things as they are? Yeah, the first thing I want to say to both. Now the categories are even becoming more uh, evident in the writing. There are formal caregivers, nurses, uh, you know, people like that, uh, and then informal caregivers is what you're talking about and what this woman is talking about. The informal caregivers are those in the home, their their parents, their spouses, their partners, their family members. And the first thing I'd say is, you know, don't forget yourself. You've got to remember that you have your own place here, you have your own space, you have your own story, and it's absolutely essential not to lose track of that. So let go of that guilt that you shouldn't feel anything. How can I possibly want anything? How can I possibly feel anything? Well, because you're a human being and this is your loved one, and so of course you do. And you know, if it's interesting, when I, when I listen to this story, and this, this woman actually contributed, she's such an articulate writer. You know, what I would say to her, someone like her, it's like, well, you may have lost that connection that you valued so much during treatment, but you know what? What, what did you receive from this? As you move forward, how can you stay open? How can you take what you received and not shut down? 
That's what I would say. So that's what we have control over, how, you, how, we, yeah. how we receive it and the choices yes, we make yes, in yeah. our life. That's the only thing we got. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Um, I'd like for you to say something about the tyranny of positive mm-hmm. thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned that right, in right. your work. Uh, so say something about that. Right. That's a that's a phrase that was coined, I believe, by Barbara Ehrenreich. She wrote a quite a scathing book, as is her usual style yes, about yes. her own oh, cancer. Oh, she, she hated the pink. You know. She was great. And uh, she coined the phrase, which I think is magnificent, because you know it's really interesting. Like people don't talk about the gift of diabetes, or you know what a journey is a heart attack. But with the cancer, and and you know I I don't actually know why this is, but it, it all becomes like, wow, this is such a gift and you can do so much with it. And, you know, yes, that's true. But when it becomes a tyrannical, oppressive expectation that you're now supposed to turn a horrible experience into, into you know, gold, uh, sort of automatically. And, and like the Maya Stein poem, poem this is hard work. It, it, transformation is, I'm sure you know this, transformation is hard work. And, and that's the point. It, so the tyranny of like how you're all supposed to, you know, cheerily hold hands and, and uh, kumbaya, yeah, kumbaya <laughs> and, and uh, do all these things uh, and, and get better, be better. Don't feel anything. It's, it's, it's an oppression. And I think it needs to really just go away. <laughs> and one, one last point um, toward the end of your guide and workbook um, you mentioned something about um, the internet and Google <laughs> and art, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, so we're, we're past treatment now and here we are, uh, we're looking up different things mm-hmm. and uh, what, what suggestion do you have for our uh, looking up resources on, mm-hmm. on the internet? Well, we're talking about Dr. Google, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. oftentimes I know if someone comes in and they're telling me these Every horrible possible symptom that could be happening leading to a disaster, I always say, you've been, you've, you've been talking to Dr. Google. <laughs> and now people even laugh about, it. yeah, I've, I've been talking to Dr. Google. What I suggest, though, is all, ask, your, ask your physician or ask your, ask your provider, what resources would you recommend for the, the, the medical aspects of this? And then for the more emotional, what I suggest to people is, you know, look online, find a a group that um, perhaps is your own cancer or if you're the caregiver, like who are caregivers and find a group that you can relate to for the emotional support so that you can sort of swap stories. And no one was more surprised, and I mentioned this in the book, no one was more surprised than me with how much I received from the internet group that I was a part of. Mm -hmm. I, I was the last person to think that any kind of contact could be had, but what a fantastic resource, again, for someone like someone who's maybe in the middle of nowhere and there's nobody around to process with, if they can go to the internet and find a group that understands some of the aspects of what they're going through, it's amazing. Oh, Cheryl, we, we have so much more to talk about, but I'm going to have to uh, thank you so much mm-hmm. for being with us today and encourage people to pick up your guide, the S- Surviving the Storm, a workbook for telling your cancer story, and go to your website, CherylCrowder.com, and you spell your name, C-H-E-R-Y-L Crowder, K-R-A-U-T-E-R.com. 
or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3620. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.